just for a couple minutes before we depart as I uh, just respond to a few of the really excellent questions that were submitted. Verse 1, regarding submitting to husbands, what should a wife do in an abusive situation? Physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual. Should they stay in that situation too and and submit even at risk to their health and well-being or kids' health and well-being? I want to make sure very clear that the answer to that is no. That um, the first step is to break those patterns, to get out of that situation, right? And any of the pastors and elders here, if you're in that situation, uh, would desire to come alongside you in that, to help you navigate the process legally and otherwise of finding a way to get in a safe place. First and foremost, you can step out of it and consider what God might have for you next. But the, the first step is to get out of the situation. Second, what does honor look like toward a spouse who does not obey the word and has betrayed and hurt their family? I think on one side, what it doesn't look like is enabling that, or you don't have to speak glowingly about this person and lie about them by you know, speaking all these positive things about them all the time. However, on the other side, it's not taking the low-hanging fruit of bashing on them at every opportunity either. Many of us have had to navigate this with, uh, you know, in the last several years, the office of the president has gone from one party to the other, right? And so we're called to honor those in authority over us. And so even when we don't like the person in office and what the policies are or what their character is or whatever it may be, we choose to honor the office and act in a way that's according to that. There's something like that in regards to a marriage where either the husband or the wife is an unbeliever. And we're called to honor that person, not speaking ill of them to others as part of what's involved in that, um, but also doesn't mean that we need to pretend like everything's great either. Third, you described the hope in verse 5. This is such an important clarification question, so thanks for texting this in. You described the hope in verse 5 in terms of our experience in this life, but isn't the horizon of this hope that is described in Titus 3.7 the hope of eternal life? Can we assume that our faithfulness in marriage will lead us to enjoy blessings in this life? So again, just a reminder on verse 5, what that's, what's going on there. It said, this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. And I was saying that that hope in God is what enabled them to submit and enabled them to adorn themselves inwardly. Um, and I was sloppy with that. That's a very important clarification that what I was meaning is that it is their hope in the future, in eternity. And it's because... I know where I'm headed, and I know that one day I'm going to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant, and I'm going to be vindicated even publicly that all humans, angels standing around that throne on that last day are going to see, wow, that person that I disparaged, that person that I demeaned, that person that I said was on the wrong side of history, that person I said had given up and and, 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 uh, settled for less than full personhood because she submitted to her husband, she actually was a full person all along and full, fully, fully experiencing the fullness of life that existed in Christ that I missed out on. That's what will happen on the last day. And it's because we're picturing that last day and that hope. Uh, oh, that person who refused to let her adornment be external, she's actually the one who looks glorious now that we're, that we're all astonished by. 
Uh, it's that hope of that future that can empower us now to do things that are countercultural, like submitting and adorning ourselves inwardly. It is exactly as this person said, the hope of eternal life that does that. And so we can't assume that our faithfulness in marriage will lead us to enjoy blessings in this life. We, we can believe that, it'll lead, that God will enable us to have joy in the midst of all circumstances. We can't assume that it's going to all turn around. It doesn't happen. How, how many faithful Christians, their, their unbelieving spouses never come to know the Lord? That happens. It may not ever turn around here in this life, but the hope is that an eternal life and that vindication that's coming on the last day that is talked about so frequently in First Peter. Finally, in an email, can you send out the list of questions you wrote on an index card to ask Sarah? And I certainly will send those out for whatever they're worth. Uh, thanks for this time together. If you have more, more questions may come to mind, text them in, same number, and we'll, uh, we'll write out some responses in this Thursday's uh, highlights that goes out to the congregation. Uh, let me leave you with this blessing. If you don't mind actually standing, if you're able to receive this blessing. This blessing came to mind as one that would be fitting for today because um, what we saw today is only worth spending any of our time on if our God is really, really good and a lot smarter than we are, right? We believe that he is. Here's what it says in 1 Timothy. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. You might say as an aside, that's the God who wrote, who inspired the writing of what we read today. And so we're trusting in him. And it says, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Go in peace. Without a word, by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. <clears throat> if you've been to the kids section of your local library or bookstore recently, you know there's a whole industry nowadays retraining young girls uh, to do, uh, to resist these sort of backward things like submitting to your husband, right? Yeah, here it is. Submit yourselves to your own husbands or in the ESV, uh, be subject to your own husbands. I think submit yourselves to your husbands is a uh, less confusing rendering in our current understanding of those words. But either way, this flies in the face of our norms of what we are taught, what young women are taught today in our society. And as you may know, Peter isn't unique in using this language. Uh, Paul does in multiple places in the New Testament. And Peter and Paul are both coming from this theology of marriage that goes something like this. Husbands and wives are perfectly equal in God's sight. Yet, there are distinctions in roles within the marriage as a visible illustration of an invisible reality, the relationship between Christ and his church. And so in Ephesians and in Colossians and here in 1 Peter, Peter and Paul lay out a situation that um, suggests that there's a different posture for a husband in a marriage than there is for a wife. And I use that language of posture intentionally because it's not a settled, set, rigid fixation. 
It's a posture. You know how from a posture you can take all different sorts of actions, right? If I'm sitting down, I can do a lot of things from a seated position. I can do other things from a standing position, but certain postures lend themselves more or less to other actions. In the same way, there's a New Testament kind of, there's an underlying understanding in the New Testament and in the Old Testament that the the standard position, the posture of the husband is to be eager to lead. And the standard position or the posture of the wife is to be eager to help. Now hear me out. That isn't leading to the exclusion of helping. And it's not helping to the exclusion of leading. In other words, the husband who says, no, I won't help you decorate the living room because I'm the leader around here and I don't help anybody. That husband has completely missed the message of the New Testament with regards to how Christian marriage is supposed to look. It's not that the husband can never help, and it's not that the wife could never lead. It's just the posture that we're talking about. The general posture of a husband is eager to lead. The general posture of a husband, uh, of a wife, is eager to help, and that goes back to the creation story in which Adam was given a task on earth and then given a wife to help him with that task that he would be completely unable to carry out to be fruitful and multiply subdue the earth on his own. That's kind of the, un, what's underneath this passage. The theology is underneath Peter and Paul's counsel to uh, husbands and wives. And now we see in that light, Peter saying, submit yourselves, wives, to your husbands. Submit yourselves. Now, submit yourselves, which is a faithful rendering of this, suggests and actually demands of us that a husband is not the one who demands this of his wife, right? She chooses freely, willingly to submit herself to her own husband. And that's what it says there, right? Her own husband, right? Which is another corrective to the idea that all women in general are supposed to be submissive to all men. Not the case. Nowhere taught in Scripture, Submit yourselves to your own husbands and only submit yourself to your own husband insofar as that submission doesn't violate your primary submission, which is always to be to Christ. In other words, if submitting to your husband would, le- would mean you going into doing wrong, doing evil, then you ought not submit to your husband in that case because your submission to Christ is what needs to win out, according to Peter, according to Paul, according to the... Uh, whole testimony of the New Testament. So let's be honest here. I mean, this is a hard word to hear for some of us today. Uh, Even for a wife who has an awesome, godly husband, that's a little bit difficult to swallow to hear, submit yourselves to your own husbands. But Paul, I mean, Peter is actually writing not only to women in that situation, but even to Christian wives whose husbands disobey the word. Did you see that in verse 1? He's even writing that even if some do not obey the word, this still applies. Now, on first glance, we might say that's predictably traditionalist, right? But actually, what would have been the traditionalist understanding in Peter's day that he's pushing against here is that a woman, a wife, in a marriage needs to um, worship whatever gods her husband worships. She needs to not rock the boat in terms of any religious practices in the home, and if she does, she needs to keep it to herself. That's what was counseled and taught in the writings that we have from that day. 
But Peter's not traditionalist. He pushes against that. He gives the wife a totally different goal in this marriage in which her husband is not a believer in Jesus. Do you see what the goal is? The goal is actually that they may be one, that she would win him. That, friends, is an incredibly empowering thing for a Christian wife hearing this, that she could hold out that goal in her mind, that she would win her husband to her understanding, to what has captivated her soul, to the living hope that she has encountered. Now, it's not win him by chastising him for not coming to church with you on Sunday. It's not win him by wearing him out for his ungodly actions and character, right? What does it say? It talks about winning without a word by respectful and pure conduct. Does that mean that a Christian wife who has an unbelieving husband should never share the gospel with him? I don't think it can mean that because in order for the husband to be disobedient to the word, as the verse says, he has to have known the word in the first place. He's heard it from his wife. What this is pointing out is that in many cases, marriage or not, our behavior will speak at least as loud, if not louder, to people who haven't yet come to know Jesus than our words will. In other words, People aren't going to be willing to hear what we have to say about Jesus if our lives don't match up with it, if our lives don't provide a compelling and beautiful testimony to that, right? And they shouldn't. In 2019, verses 1 and 2, what does this look like in our lives? Is this asking a lot of wives? In a sense, yeah, it is. In another sense, we've already seen in First Peter that all of us are called to honor everyone. All of us are called to submit to all the authorities in our lives, even those that are incompetent or even that mistreat us. And so in, that, in those ways, this passage isn't actually unique in the course of Peter's counsel. It's critical, though, that we see that P- Peter isn't laying out specifics of how this should work out. He doesn't give us many specifics. Uh, like, like, should a Christian wife whose husband is not a Christian, like how many activities at the church or church-type things should she be doing throughout the week? That's an important question that many women wrestle with. Um, How often should I challenge my husband on things that I know that he's off base on? That's an important question that many women wrestle with. Peter doesn't step into those and wade into all the details of it. He gives the principle of submission and leaves it to husband and wives to figure out together in each marriage how that's going to look. And for that reason, I think... That should make us slow to be ultra-prescriptive about a really narrow and tightly defined mode of biblical womanhood, so to speak. I think we should be really slow to that because any definition that we do come up with about biblical womanhood has to be broad enough to encompass a variety of women living out their calling faithfully in a variety of different situations, and it looks very different in Scripture, right? Our definition of biblical womanhood has to incorporate, has to have room for Esther, Rahab, Deborah, Mary, Anna, the Proverbs 31 woman, right? All these different women who lived out their calling as women faithfully in Scripture in different ways. The specifics might look different in different families. But the principle here is clear enough. Submission. And so, for all of us who are under any authority, it's cause for us to stop here before we move on to verse 3 and pause and reflect on how am I acting toward the authorities that are over me in my life? 
And when others see me living as one under authority, what do they see in me as I live under the authority of others? When we submit to the authorities in our lives, including in this passage, wives submitting to their husbands, we do so out of submission ultimately to Christ. The next subsection of uh, this first part to Christian wives deals with inward beauty. And we'll go to that right now. Verses 3 and 4. Follow along with me. It says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. The world tells women, be noticeable. Some elements of Christian modesty culture, maybe we could call it, give the opposite message to Christian women. Uh, Don't be noticeable. Make sure you're not noticeable. What I actually think that Peter's doing here is saying, be noticeable, women, but don't be noticeable in the way that the world tells you to be noticeable. Be noticeable in a different way. Do you see that here? He's talking about adornment in verses 3 and 4. And he's not anti-adornment, actually. He's talking about how your adornment ought not be from the things that are on the outside, braids, jewelry, clothing. Now, are braids and jewelry wrong? They can't be because then we'd have to say that the third item in the list is also wrong, wearing of clothes. So what Peter must be saying is that, yeah, wear braids, wear jewelry, wear clothes. Your adornment must not be from those external things. And if not from those external things, what ought it be from? Well, it's from somewhere more lasting. And because it's more lasting, it's more valuable, according to these verses. It's it's what's inside, those heart qualities that nobody can see in and of themselves, but that do end up manifesting themselves inevitably by the words that come out of our mouths and by the actions that we take in our lives. And, And what inner qualities are called for here? Well, In particular, it calls for a gentle and quiet spirit. Gentle and quiet spirit there toward the end of verse 4. Now, that's especially called for for wives here, but those are also descriptors used of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in other places in the New Testament, they're also called for for all believers. But it's especially apt for Peter to speak to wives about this gentle and quiet spirit here because Haven't we had the experience that some of the times when it's hardest for us to be gentle, hardest for us to possess that quiet spirit, is when we find ourselves under authority and that authority isn't always working for our good? I think that's some of the times when it's hardest, and I think that's why he brings that up specifically to many wives who may have been experiencing that exact thing. What I didn't really notice or appreciate before working through this text uh, over the past week or two is that Peter really isn't telling women to forget adornment altogether. He's really saying, get adornment, women. Just get the right kind of adornment. In other words, be noticeable, but be the right kind of noticeable. That people would see your good deeds, and as a result, that they'd they'd speak well, not only of you, but of, of the good news that lives inside of you. So if we're asking ourselves a question, an application type question, at the end of verses 3 and 4, we might ask ourselves, well, how noticeable are we? And what are we noticeable for, right? 
our inner qualities may never be as evident as the name brands and the hairstyles and the surgeries that our neighbors have that make them noticeable. However, over time, as people spend time with us, those inner qualities will be noticeable. And most importantly, they're noticeable to our our Lord. Now, why? Submission, inward beauty, why? What's the reason for these calls? Uh, And that's an important question, a very important question, because here's why. If the reason that Peter calls for submission and inward beauty is a reason that's limited to his culture and his time and place, then we'd be justified in saying today, maybe the call to submit, maybe the call to inward beauty, those don't really apply anymore. Because they were just culturally specific calls to Peter's time and place. Like, like greet one another with a holy kiss. That's not something that we do today, right? However, if Peter's reasons for calling for submission and for inward beauty are grounded in something that transcends his time and place, then there's reason to think that those commands still endure for us today. So which is it? I think we start to see in verse 5. And the reason we look to verse 5 for that is because verse 5 starts with that word for, F-O-R. You see that? That's a signal that, hey, what I'm about to give you is a reason for what I just said. What comes after the word for is going to be a reason that grounds what has already been said. And so let's look at the reason he gives. The reasons he give are past examples, actually. Verses 5 and 6, follow along with me. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. By submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do God, if you if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Progressive theologians, many of whom love the Lord dearly and are very smart. Um the the way they would come at a passage like this, uh, is they'd say something like this, okay? So Peter is writing the way he writes in this passage about submission and such because in his day, is the traditional culture that he lived in, that's the way it was. And he didn't want to give any cause for offense. He didn't want people to speak ill of Christianity. He wanted people to be open to the gospel. And so he said, hey, just fall in line with the way things are being done in the culture. And then these progressive theologians would say, in 2019, it's a different day and age. Actually, Today, to talk about wives submitting to husbands would do the exact opposite. It would make the world around us um, think ill of the gospel, be turned off to the gospel. Therefore, in 2019, we can push that aside and do, go a different way, a different way that lines up more with how the culture around us is living. Right? The problem with that line of interpretation, I think, is how Peter himself structures this and the for, the reason he gives in verses 5 and 6. It's not for this is how it's done today. It's for this is how it used to be done. In other words, when Peter's writing this, he's already seeing his own day as a new day, a day in which culture has left behind the way things used to be done. And while in many, many situations, Peter says, yeah, do what the rest of the culture is doing so that we don't give offense. In this particular situation... 
with regards to the interactions between wives and husbands, and specifically wives in this section, he says, actually, we need to go back to the way it used to be done. You see that word used to there? The holy women who hoped in God the way they used to adorn themselves. Um, These holy women who hoped in God were Old Testament believers who submitted to their husbands, who adorned themselves inwardly. And what's the connection between the submission and the adorning? I think we get that here in verse 5, which we we weren't provided that in verses 1 through 4. But I think the connection is that little phrase there that they hoped in God. They hoped in God. Think that through with me. If I hope in God, that enables me to do both the submission and the inward beauty. If I hope in God, I can submit to authorities, even the ones that I look at that are kind of incompetent, that I think I could be doing it better and I probably could. I can still submit to those authorities in my life because my hope is in God. He's not going to let me miss out on the fullness of personhood, for example, by submitting. Also, I can lean into inward beauty because I don't have to fear that I'm going to be missing out on anything that people who pursue outward beauty and outward adornment are going to be experiencing. I'm going to get the fullest of the full because God said that this is the way I ought to live and he is wise and good and my hope is in him. I think that's what, how Peter is putting the two together here in verse 5. And he gives Sarah as the prime example of these holy women who hoped in God. And it gets a little bit weird in here. Uh, from our perspective. Um, Two things that seem weird to me when I read that as a reader in 2019. Sarah obeyed Abraham. Obedience. And she called him Lord. Now, some husbands here might be like, wow, I I need to start coming to church more often. This is going to end up being a good situation for me. But is that really what's going on here? Um, Or... Are we, is the takeaway that women are supposed to go home and call their husbands Lord and obey them? Um, I think not exactly for a couple reasons. It seems here that the obedience, first of all, obedience and submission are not the same thing, right? They're not equivalent. Um, Sarah's obedience to Abraham in verse 6 is given as an example of how far she was willing to go in submitting to him. In other words, nowhere in the New Testament are wives called or commanded to obey their husbands, like children are commanded to obey their parents. It's not that kind of relationship. But this is saying, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, hey, look how far Sarah took it, you know? So let's submit to our husbands. Sarah did it this way. Um, her obedience to Abraham is one example. Um, the other thing that's kind of odd about it, though, is that it's hard to actually, if you go looking in the Old Testament, it's hard to find a clear example of where Sarah actually obeyed Abraham at any point. Actually, in chapter 16, Abraham obeys her twice. And then in chapter 21, God literally says, this is the exact quote from chapter 21, God says to Abraham, do whatever Sarah tells you. Um, some wife is going to be quoting that to her husband this week. So when did, what is Peter thinking about when he says, hey, do it like Sarah did when she, you know, for example, she obeyed Abraham. Um, the best candidate, I think, is from Genesis chapter 12. It's the story when Abraham takes Sarah to Egypt and he gets scared for his life there. He gets scared that because my wife Sarah is beautiful, they're going to want her and so they're going to kill me. 
And so what's his plan? What does he tell Sarah she needs to do or suggest that Sarah does? Hey, say, say you're my sister while we're here. Uh, just while we're in Egypt, just say you're my sister. Now, that's great for him because he's not going to get killed. Is that a great deal for her? No, that's terrifying, right? It's a horrible thing to do to her. We don't know if she pushed back against that at all. Uh, she may well have. But in the end, when he said, no, let's do this, she submitted to it. And she did it. She said she was his sister. And she, her life was put in great peril as a result of that. She was taken as, into uh, Pharaoh's court as one of his wives and got rescued from something worse happening. But um, she put herself at great risk to save her husband's life. If that's what Peter's thinking about here, the story he's thinking about, I, I go all down that road for a reason. I think it actually matches very, very well what Peter's trying to do in this whole section overall. Think about this with me. What better example of somebody in exile than Sarah being brought into Egypt, a strange land, uh, with her husband? He was just talking about husbands who don't obey the word. What an example of that. Sarah trying to navigate life with a husband who has been given these great promises but just yet won't obey the word and is trying to take matters into his own hands by saying, say you're my sister. She puts herself in danger. She puts herself at risk to save her husband's life. Isn't that just the picture that we've been seeing in this passage of our Lord Jesus who was willing to suffer and even lay down his life to save our lives? That's what Sarah does for her husband. And as such, she's a model that Peter wants all women to look at as a model. Maybe that's why he goes into what he goes into next in verse 6. when He starts talking about doing good and not fearing anything that's frightening. How frightening would it have been to be Sarah in that situation in Egypt, right? Some of you actually have a little bit of a taste of how frightening that would be because you've been in a marriage or you are in a marriage in which um, your husband's misguided leadership has put you in some sort of danger or peril. And you know what this is like. And you start to think, well, if I don't look out for myself in this marriage, then who will? Peter says, following in Sarah's footsteps, becoming a a child of Sarah, is to not fight back in fear or self-preservation, but rather to fear God and continue to do good. Let me ask an application question here at the end of verses 5 and 6, but then I do want to offer a clarification as well. The question maybe we'd ask is, are we living this quiet confidence in God? Talked about in verse 5, this hope in God. Or are we living in fear? The quiet confidence that's pictured here in these past examples has a way of quelling our fears. Has a way of helping us trust that doing things God's way, submitting, for example, won't be ultimately damaging to me in the ultimate sense. I won't ultimately be overlooked on the last day because I choose inward beauty over outward beauty. Quiet confidence in God or living in fear. But here's a clarification. We need to make this absolutely clear. Nowhere in this passage or in any other passage in Scripture is there any reason to think that the Bible wants 
a woman who's experiencing abuse to stay in and keep putting up with abuse. Sexual abuse, physical abuse, severe verbal emotional abuse. There's nothing in this passage that would mandate you as a wife if you're experiencing those things from continuing to put up with those things. That's not what this is talking about. Domestic abuse was outlawed even in Peter's day. It would have been seen as unacceptable. And if you have found yourself a victim in some way, and you've been told somewhere along the line by a well-meaning Christian maybe that to be a Christian wife is to continue subjecting yourself to abuse at the hands of your husband. That is not the truth. That is not the case. And you need to hear that this morning from God's word, that that cannot be substantiated anywhere from God's word. There is no place in a marriage, Christian or otherwise, for abuse. If you find yourself in that situation, you are well within your rights, if we can speak that way. Uh, It is the right thing to do to get yourself out of that situation. That's going to be supported also in Peter's counsel to husbands in verse 7. So let's turn there as we finish. Verse 7, to Christian husbands. Just as the counsel to wives was countercultural in Peter's day in some ways, he's going to give some countercultural instructions to husbands as well. Let's follow along as I read verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. In the locker room at the fitness center, the water cooler at work, in the stands at kids' t-ball games, um, husbands complain about their wives frequently. Um, The old ball and chain, right? Peter's calling for a different kind of attitude here than that. He starts out, live with your wives in an understanding way. If you're here this morning and you've tried to live this out, living with your wife, you're living with your wife in an understanding way, you know it's not something that you can just turn on like flipping a switch. It's something that requires work. It requires time. And I was convicted along these lines over the last week or two thinking about this and I actually happened to come across a well-worn index card in one of, in an old box in my house that we were unpacking. And uh, On this index card I had written early in our marriage, probably eight or nine years ago, a list of questions to ask Sarah frequently in our marriage. Um, Let me give you a couple examples of them. What could I do to make you feel more loved and cherished? How can I best demonstrate my appreciation for you? To what extent do you feel like I understand your heart? To what extent do you feel secure with me? What mutual goal would you like to see us accomplish together? And uh, I've gotten away from asking those questions. I haven't seen that index card in years. You know, you get, you get going in marriage and you think, well, now I get it. I get her, you know. But how many conversations do we have, men, with our wives in which we realize we've been assuming things that just aren't true uh, of our wives and we didn't take the time to ask, to understand. I think that's part of what it looks like to live with our wives in an understanding way is to ask those questions, be intentional about it. It takes time. It takes thought. Uh, but that's what we're called to do here instead of assuming. And Peter goes on. He talks about showing honor. Middle of verse 7 there. Showing honor. Have you met a man who really showed honor to his wife? It's a sort of guy who speaks highly of her, compliments her in public. 
sort of guy who, for whom it's evident that he treasures her and respects her. She gets a high priority in his use of time and money. That's some of the things it looks like to show honor. What, what does it not look like to show honor? It doesn't, it doesn't look like joining in the chorus of complaints when the guys get together and complain about their wives. It looks like not cracking jokes at our wives' expense. Although that may be the most normal thing in the world to do, what Peter's telling us is that what's normal isn't always what's Christian. The honor we are to give is, according to this passage, the sort of honor given as uh, to, to a weaker vessel. Now, a weaker vessel, what is that? What is that talking about? Here's what I think it means. <clears throat> in most marriages, not all, in the average marriage, <clears throat> because of mass and muscle tone, at least, the average husband could force his way in a given situation if he wanted to by overpowering his wife or by intimidating his wife with his physical strength, right? Not always true, but in the average marriage, that's the truth. What Peter's saying is because you're a stronger vessel and she's a weaker vessel, physically speaking, that's not a reason for you to bulldoze her. That's a reason for you to honor her. And again, we can't help but think that Underneath that, for Peter, is this theology that this marriage relationship is supposed to be a visible representation of the invisible relationship between Christ and the church, a relationship in which Christ is far stronger than the church, and yet doesn't use his strength to get his own way or overpower the church, rather spends his strength on the church's behalf to beautify his bride, to make her lovely, to be a blessing to her. And he finishes with a since and a so that. You see that at the end of verse 7? A since and a so that. That's two reasons why men ought to show honor to our wives. And neither of those reasons is what we might expect. We, we might misunderstand what he said so far to be this patronizing sort of, hey, she's weaker, so let her win sometimes. That kind of thing. That's not where Peter's coming from, though. Do you see what he said? He's saying, honor your wife because she deserves it, basically. You see that? since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. In, in other words, that wife of yours is your equal, period, end of sentence. She's a co-inheritor with you of the grace of life. In other words, there is no higher status that she could possibly have. And so when you honor her, you're only doing what's right, only giving her what she deserves. A second misunderstanding that gets corrected here with the so that is one that we hear a lot. I hear a lot even in Christian circles. It's a self-serving kind of spin on this passage that isn't exactly what this passage is saying. It's this. Have you heard it? Happy wife, happy life. Right? I want to talk about that for a second. Um, a lot of times what's underneath that when people are like, happy wife, happy life, is something like this. Honor your wife so that your Monday night football watching won't be hindered. Right? If she's happy, then she'll end up giving you some freedom to do the things you want to do. That's kind of the reasoning underneath it, right? Is that what Peter says? Honor your wife so that Monday night football watching won't be hindered? Honor your wife so that your prayers may not be hindered. If the first time you read that, husbands, you're not terrified, I think we've got to reread it slowly. 
Honor your wives so that your prayers may not be hindered. In other words, Peter's like, hey, listen, if you're the guy who, um, whose, wi- whose wife's needs are inconvenient for you, if you're the guy who can't be troubled to give your wife the help that she's asking for, you got bigger problems than Monday Night Football. The God who's watching you might actually stop listening to you. That's what it says. Your prayers would be hindered. It's so important to the God that we love, to the God that we believe in, that we honor our wives, that if we fail to do so, he doesn't promise to continue listening to our prayers. So we might ask ourselves this question, men, as we're taking this seriously, husbands, at the end of verse 7, what concrete steps are we taking, am I taking, to develop in understanding our wives and to grow in our honoring of our wives? The big idea, wives, husbands, big idea is this, let's do marriage God's way. Let's do marriage God's way. The way of traditional society is patriarchal. It's hierarchical. It's do what he says and let him live his life. The way of progressive society is egalitarian. It's 50-50. It's stand up for your rights and negotiate to get what you want. It's not honoring to God to be traditional for the sake of being traditional. It's also not honoring to God to be progressive for the sake of being progressive. It's honoring to God to imitate Christ which is what both husband and wife are called to in this passage, which means that the way of disciples of a suffering Messiah is something altogether different from anything that the traditional or progressive world has seen. It's a wife imitating Christ's suffering by being willing to submit to even a less than competent leader in her home. It's a husband imitating Christ's suffering by leaning into the hard work of understanding his wife, serving his wife, laying down his life for his wife, as Ephesians says, using his power not to enrich himself, but to spend himself on her behalf. Is that what the world sees when they observe marriages of us here at North Sub? Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for counsel on marriage. But more than that, we thank you for what our human marriages here on earth are meant to be a living parable of. The greater reality of your relationship with us, your church. Lord, you laid down your life for us. When we were your enemies, when we were doing anything but submitting to you, you nevertheless used your great power, laid down your prerogatives to crush us where we were, and instead spent yourself on our behalf, allowing yourself to suffer and die in our place so that we could be with you. We could experience that great wedding feast to come. Lord, in our marriages, help us to reflect this. Help us husbands to lay down our lives for our wives. Help wives to love their husbands and even submit to them in, in a posture that is so countercultural today. Thank you for examples of that that each of us have seen in our lives, and we pray that you give us the strength to live out what we've seen and been convicted by in your word today.
In Jesus' name, amen.